Welcome to CTO Think, a podcast about leadership, product development, and tech decisions between two recovering chief technology officers. Here are your hosts, Don Vandemark and Randy Burgess. Hey, Don, what's going on? Hey, Randy, not a lot. Uh, I understand uh, you brought a guest with you this week. Yes, we have our first guest. Um, I'd like to introduce everybody to Mark Thompson. How's it going, Mark? Oh, it's going fantastic. I'm really honored to be here. Thanks for having me. You are one of our bigger fans, especially on Twitter. Um, so we were really happy to have you on. Let me introduce everyone to you and talk about, and then I think we'll get into why we have you on the show. Um, your background is developer, teacher, and now I would say it's morphing into a combination type role. Like you started out as a senior engineer at Go Health for about two years. Then you were a lead engineer at a certify for three years. And then you're an instructor at the Northwestern University coding boot camp for the past two years. And in that time, this is where I met you actually was at the Northwestern coding boot camp. You won the Distinguished Teaching Excellence Award at the Northwestern Professional Development Programs for 2017. So that is not an award that just goes around to anybody. This is a pretty prestigious thing at Northwestern. And now you have a new role. And I'm kind of curious, what is the title of that role and what does it involve now? Yeah, so the title is Director of Academic Excellence. And what's involved with that is I'll be working with a bunch of instructors across the network that teach these coding boot camps, and they'll be working on developing new training programs for them so that we can really have a uniform, solid performance across the network. And when I say network, I'm talking about different universities. And I'll also be working on doing some coaching. I'll be leading a team there of other people who will be working with onboarding and training instructors. So it's a really interesting role in that I'll have my hands in a lot of areas that all lead toward having a really high quality student experience overall. Awesome. Now that's at Trilogy Education Services, which is the company that partners with Northwestern on the coding boot camps. And I'll just say that when I, they told me they had hired you, they were talking to me a while back and they said, yeah, we're hiring Mark Thompson full time. I'm like, that's great. What's his role going to be? And when they told me what your job was, I was like, oh, why wasn't he doing this when I started out? <laughs> so it's a great role for you. I think Trilogy is going to have great success with you in this position. So congrats on that. Thank you um, very much. You, you also have a side project going on, and I'm going to let you introduce it because I think I know what the name of it is, but I'm not totally sure. So tell us a little bit about your side project and what that involves. Yeah, because I don't like free time, I decided to take on a new <laughs> job and a side project with a new baby at home. So my, nice. my side project is a company that I started called Totally Strong Inc. And what it is, it's a fitness app that allows people to create workouts, share their workouts, and do workouts for home or gym all through the app, mm. all for free. Nice. So I actually think it's a great part of your teaching and it was it helped me when I did mine 
actually building things and then being able to teach about building things, not being solely as an instructor, but also, I mean, you had, this is using a new technology essentially with, is it Flutter IO that you're using? That's 100% correct. And so you were in the role of learning while you were teaching and helping to change diapers essentially all the same time. So how, like, I'm curious how that challenge um, has affected a little bit with you or you were basically in the role of student um, all of a sudden as well. Yeah. So that's one of the things that I really didn't realize actually was going to happen, but I learned so much about what it's like to be a student that it, it helped me to teach even better because, so here's the problem. So Flutter just got into beta, I think last yeah. week. And I was working with alpha builds of this new technology that is not based in any stack that I used before. So it's not a drop JavaScript yeah. stack. It's not like React Native. It's really using Dart and then its proprietary framework that Google made. And so as I'm trying okay. to learn how to work with the framework, it reminded me of like, oh, yeah, this is how my students feel all the time when I'm like, yeah, just create an express <laughs> server or just do this. And when someone told me, and that's one of the hardest parts, when everyone ever told me just do this when I had a problem, yeah. it drove me up the wall because I'm like, if I could just do it, then I would just do it. Right. And so yes. when I'm teaching now, I, I really try not to say this is easy or this is simple or just do that. I try to remember that that, that feeling of all right, this is something new for them and you have to be patient as they are learning. So this is a great segue into what we, I wanted to talk to you about today, which is the show is a lot about technical management, technical leadership. Um, and uh, many times a person in a CTO or technical management type role finds themselves in the position of hiring junior devs, green level devs, um, developers that come from one stack and need to move to another. So in your experience as a developer and now as a, as a teacher and now a kind of a manager over instructors, I wanted to talk about what you think makes for a manager to best teach um, when they don't have a classroom setting, like you can't sit down and do what we were doing three hours of teaching a day, so to speak, because you're also running a, a company, running a business. So I wanted to ask you about um, what you thought managers can do better for helping teach and be mentors to those folks trying to move up the development ladder. Yeah, great question. So I think the first part about when you have junior developers and just newer developers who need some more hands-on, they're a little bit higher touch than your senior level engineer that comes on. I think first yeah. thing has to be culture. And as a, as a leader of an organization at any level, even if it's just as a team lead, for instance, or if it's even higher, the culture that you create is going to have a big part about that. And what I mean by that is it really should be a place where people feel comfortable asking questions. Yep. And so that's not a tactical thing you can do, but it's more of a cultural thing. How would you say that a manager can do that best? Because we have a lot of avenues for communication and we have Slack. Um, and we, I would say Slack didn't, was not the best tool in my classrooms. I don't know if they are in a management setting, but when 
if you are a manager trying to allow for questions, what do you think is the best kind of approach for someone to do that? I think one of those things you can do is making sure that all the team members are open to being asked questions and have that tolerance built up. Because I know that one of the things that's really hard is when there are deadlines due and there are deliverables that need to be put out there, you don't really want to be bothered. You want to be head down and you really want to be focused. But I think that when you have new people on, it really behooves you to kind of make sure that people on your team are open to someone walking up to them, at least in the first let's say month or so that you just have to build up that tolerance. Say, Hey, this this person may ask you questions and be open to answering those questions and making sure that you empower those people by giving them the tools they need to be successful on their own. So you can point them in the right direction versus having to sit with them all the time. Yeah. The other, I like when you bring up the item of like asking questions, I remember my students and they would not ask questions because they felt stupid doing so. So I don't know what mechanism, like I had to really pull out of people when they got stumped, even when I was walking around them sometimes and like when we were working on projects. Do you have any mechanisms that you use to pull questions out of people who are otherwise introverted or worried about looking bad or just overall hesitant about ever asking when they have a question. Yeah. So I think it's two different environments that I I have techniques for that. So I think in a classroom, one of the things is I'm quick to highlight when someone does ask a question that they aren't the only one thinking that, and that I'm so glad that they were able to voice that concern. Cause I'll literally say, well, you know what, Randy, you may have asked that question right now, but you're not even the only one. I think 20 other people in this room think the same thing. They just didn't want to say it. So I'm really proud of you for asking that question because it's going to help you to get the most out of this experience. So that's in the yeah. classroom I'll handle that. But then I think in the workplace, so how, what do you, how do you do that? Because you don't really have someone standing up front directing questions. I think one of those ways you can do that is to have one of your teamers be assigned to working with that newer a developer, whether it be, like I said, junior or just a new stack like we talked about before, and yeah. having that person just check in periodically and ask them to explain back to me what this thing means. You're working on something. Tell me what you think about it so far. And when usually people are trying to explain something they don't understand, you kind of push them into a corner of having to ask a question or otherwise they'll kind of suffer in silence. Yeah. And that's not good for the team. And, I w- and yeah. if you do suffer from silence, I'll say, you know what? It's okay if you don't know this. Here's how you can find out. And again, so yeah. this still goes back to culture, though, right? And which is not a, a thing that all developers think about is the culture that they create in their, in their on their teams. Yes, I agree. Now, you also brought up having another person on the team, like a senior person, also be part of that. And that's part of the culture. I do remember in my classrooms, I gave both of my TAs the right to interrupt me when I wasn't making sense. Or if they were getting, sometimes my students would back channel Slack questions to them in the middle of me talking and they would jump in and go, that's not making sense. And I gave them the green light to do that. So that goes to culture as well as letting people see that, hey, the person in the front of the classroom doesn't necessarily, like, he's not necessarily going to be always correct with how he's delivering this. 
there are people at every level in the company that are or in the office that are allowed to interrupt or to at least give feedback of, hey, can you explain that differently? So I'm remembering some of these things as you bring them up because I remember how effective they were with a, kind of bringing the classroom to that level of, hey, it's okay to ask questions. So we've, we've talked a lot about asking questions. Culture is the other one. Do you have any other things about culture that kind of helps with that organizational learning process? I think also a great set of resources is really important. So people can have the ability to learn on their own, or I guess what you can call like asynchronous learning, where we're still doing other things, but you can learn. And what I think what I'm thinking there is really about is is your content documented? Because you will say that as a developer, we all have done this, that Google is our best friend, but I can't really Google our proprietary content. Yeah. And so having just really well-documented things can be very helpful. Well, I guess the question on tools is, like, because I use plenty of them myself, how do you balance the need for people to focus on that too? Because just like you've learned with Flutter and as I've learned with anything that I've – code bases that I've kind of built on things – Having the taking the time to sit there and say, I'm going to learn this basic level stuff just so I can build later in a workplace setting. Sometimes managers don't think about it like that. Like, hey, I've given you all these tools, but when do people have the time to use them? And it makes sense that you can't just give everyone weeks to learn everything necessarily. But where do you strike that balance, I guess, is the question of you've provided tools. How much time or how do people how do you give people the right amount of time to work on? So I think one of the ways you can balance is to use a couple of techniques. One of those techniques could be pair programming. And Mm -hmm. if you are having someone sit with a more seasoned developer in terms of just being in the environment, because I think the skill difference isn't really where the learning will come in. I think it's just the familiarity with the environment. So if we can have some pair programming in the beginning, that allows me to one go back to asking questions, but I also get to see how things are done and the way we do it in our environment, because everything seems to be different depending on where you work. And you may come in with those kind of attitude of, well, my last place did this. Why don't we do that? See, all that type of stuff is kind of kind of productive here. So instead of that, let me just learn here and let me just sit with you and try to figure out what's the best way. And I think another technique is to give, if possible, assignments on the early days that force Mm. me to learn. Yeah. Without throwing me into the fire, though. I don't mean that. (laughs) (laughs) We just brought on a. Uh, developer who is transitioning from another line of work into development. He's been learning some Python on his own. Um, we use we use Django Python for for our application, and and we've talked about this before. But what the the couple of things you just mentioned are are right along what we've done so far. We we have this uh, this uh, new person doing some pair programming during the week um, in order to work with one of our more experienced developers on more intricate topics. And there's some learning that goes on while they're doing that. Um, there's some, why did you do that? Um, I think one of the challenges that I want to, I want to just put off to the side here and come back to, 
One of the challenges with that is how do you explain pair programming to a non-technical manager? So let's put that off to the side real quick and we'll come back to that. Um, the second uh, thing you mentioned was um, having some, some assignments um, that they can jump in on. And before we brought this person on board, I had our developers go through our issue queue and mark them as newcomer friendly. Um, so when he came in, we were able to assign him a couple issues and he started to dig in. Some of them were simply remove this variable, remove all instances of this variable um, and replace it with this other one. So, uh, so some very basic stuff, but stuff that he could get in, dig in on the, uh, on the code with. So um, everything you're saying really resonates with, with what we're doing. Um, I do want to get back to that question of we, in the technical world, in the development world, we all have ideas of what we think pair programming means. You try and explain that to a non-technical manager um, or non-technical leader, and they get, it, it, it's confusing, um, simply because you're essentially telling them, we're going to take these two people, and they're going to work on the same thing, and just trust me, it will go better than if we had one. So um, do you have ways that you you have, have you come across any any good explanations of pair programming for a non-technical manager? So I've never had to actually explain this to someone non-technical, but if I if I have to, here's one of the things that I think I'd I kind of take it in this direction. I'd say something around I want to do some hands-on training or have this person do some hands-on training. And when you say things like hands-on training, since that sounds so benign in terms of technical ability, it may spark some thoughts about, oh, in other industries, what does that look like? Maybe if you have an apprenticeship in a woodworking shop, right? What does that hands-on training look like? Well, okay, I'm going to show this person how we build new benches and they're going to work with me. They're going to cut some stuff, but I'm going to be guiding them through that. And so I probably try to draw some parallels around this idea of this hands-on training with my two developers, because I think you're spot on Don, in terms of the concerns that could be, that could happen where you, cause it, kind of, it sounds like you're telling me we're going to have two developers work on the same thing and their velocity is going to drop. We're going to get less yeah. things done. That's the fear. Like that's the fear you always get from non-technical managers that don't understand what the concept of pairing is. At least that's what I've heard. So, and I have had to prove that before. I don't think I did a great, great job of it when I tried to. The other item that I would add to um, why pairing is also probably more productive is if you have a senior dev that knows what's going on at the company and you have a junior that is learning, Pairing is that way to train while you are getting something done. Like in th in theory, that is the most productive manner of training. And, and if you talk about it from a manager velocity level. But the other thing that is really important is if you expect your entire team to learn off hours at home on weekends, you're courting burnout with the most vulnerable people on your team. And juniors are like at least my students were always easy to take way more late nights getting things done than was then was probably healthy for them and especially not in a work environment where you have to be in meetings and stuff. So I think burnout uh, is a big 
issue if you try to push all learning outside of work hours. And I don't know if you have an opinion on that, Mark, um, in terms of when you will like allow that or tell people to take breaks um, in terms of how they use their energy in that um, timeline. Yeah, so I think outside of work hours is a really tough sell for a lot of people because we live in a different culture now overall. And I think that technology has a different light shined upon it where I've been reading articles that say things like developers shouldn't even have side projects if they don't want to. And so there's this whole like work-life balance thing. So it's really kind of a slippery slope if we start to say, well, your learning for your role has to happen, you know, when you're not here. But I yep. do like the idea of telling people that this is kind of the best training that you can have, right? You have someone who knows what's happening. And then here's what other thing you're doing. Every development team, well, not every, but many, have people who <laughs> have who own a lot of the, the, the knowledge around the systems. Yeah. And they have, you know, a really low, like that bus factor idea, right? They get hit by a bus who could do their work. And if yep. you have pairing going on, you're having a direct knowledge transfer while there's still productivity happening. I'm going to segue really quick into a different subject. It goes from the the idea of people working off hours and um, people burning out to the topic of inter- keeping energy high in a learning environment. Um, and this may not be totally applicable to the office, but no people that do not know how you teach have never seen a more energetic teaching environment than what you mark gets what you get going in a classroom setting and i remember before i taught my first class i sat in on yours and i was like whoa if this is the standard of what (laughs) i have to do to keep up with my class i do not know what i'm getting into and but it's you do have many mechanisms for keeping energy high amongst a group of people that are trying to learn, they're confused, they're, they have pressure upon them from assignments or school or, and then the outside world. What are some of the things that you do to keep energy high in an environment where learning needs to happen? I do a few things. One of my favorite things to do, which is the, one of my hallmarks, I guess, that people know about me. The first is the idea of like power clapping, right? Yeah. And the power clap is just I have all the students clapping unison, just a single clap. And then I'll do multiples. I'll say, OK, give me three or triple clap, you know, quadruple yeah. clap, deca clap. Right. And so I just throw out these random numbers. And from the outside, it really does sound like I'm just having to make noise just to make noise. But that's <laughs> <laughs> right. But that's actually not the purpose. It's really it has a couple of purposes. The power clap can do things what I like to call crowd control. Let's say we've broken out into a discussion and I need everyone to come back so we can move forward with the lesson. I'll say, OK, power clap to come back. And so if everyone's doing the same action, we're all in unison there and we can transition more smoothly into our next itinerary uh, item. Right. Yeah. And then the other thing is, it is kind of just fun because here's what I'm thinking about. I guess I had a student who was a stay-at-home mom for probably 15 years, and she was coming back to work for the first time. So her perspective about, about what she wants from this program is different than the student that I had who had been a math teacher 
and she yeah. was going for a new career or the person who's <clears> saying, you know, I, I don't make enough money to live right now, right? Because I need a better job. And so they have all these external pressures and the, the content is hard if you're not already technically inclined. Yeah. And it's a challenge even if you are, but it's even harder if you don't have the technical background. So I'm thinking about all those things. So I'll do a power clap just to have a little bit of fun or I'll like do this thing where I'll say I'll do a dab, right? And I'll do a dab and yeah. I'll say, okay, this is for you. And so, and I'll do the hand motion where I'm like gesturing and offering it to them as like a physical form of praise. Like, bow, you did so great. This is for you. You can take that home. And just to keep the energy up because I already know that if they're, if they're frustrated, and then the class pace is dragging or it's just kind of a somber mood. It's really easy to disconnect. But I want them yeah. to win so bad that I'm constantly thinking of ways to not water down the content, but just give them enough around it to stay engaged long enough to learn something from it. Yep. The fun, There's a story about the dab. Um, I was in the middle of teaching my course, my cohort, and one of my students had a good friend that had just was day one of yours. And I kept, they kept on telling me in between, in the middle of the class, this guy, this friend of mine is like slacking me and telling me that they just did a dab. And I'm like, yep, that's, that's going to happen all the whole course. Like he just tell your friend that's, that's the start of it. <laughs> and then he's like, well, why don't you do that stuff? And I'm like, all right. So I got in front of the class. I said, this is my version of a dab. And they, the uh, whole class is like, nope, you can you can stop. You don't have to do that. <laughs> so I, I, I can't pull that off. I, I don't know. Energy-wise, the only way I found is to engage people more and I, like kind of reach out. But I got backlash. Like the, I guess there's another question about the introverts. The people that don't like to be called upon. This is an this is can be an office setting, a meeting setting, and a classroom setting. How do you reach? How do you reach and pull energy out of the introverts, the people that don't want to be called upon, even though they need to be part of the team and need to be engaged in the class? Do Do you have any techniques around that? Because I found that to be a struggle in my cohort a lot. That is a very challenging thing to do. I'll say that right up front. Yeah. And I did not always get this right. So in the beginning, my first cohort, I'm not sure that I got it right because I did have some introverts. I tend to have all kinds of students all the time, different personalities, yeah. different orientations. I get so much stuff. Like, for instance, I had to learn about using uh, gender neutral pronouns when I addressed the group because I had yeah. trans students who, who identified as non-binary. Yep. So you, you get so much stuff. And the reason I bring that up is because it forces you to learn. Like I had to learn a better way to deal with my introverted students. And one of the things that I tried to make sure to do was make sure they felt safe in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And the way I did that a lot of times was I just walk up and have a private conversation that didn't involve the whole class. Mm. and start to build that rapport. And the same thing with that team member who may be introverted. They don't get recharged from a lot of people being around them and interacting. You know, they really yeah. feel different about that. So I just go up to those students and I start to build that, that rapport. And then if I needed to pull their energy out, I did it in a way that, would, that made them still feel safe, although they were on display. So for somebody who was extroverted, I may start singing a song and then call their name at the end of the song. And then that person 
may reply with a with a laugh or a smile, but somebody who's introverted may feel embarrassed by that. Yeah. So for yeah. that person, I'll just lower my voice a little bit, and then I'll still ask them the question versus like, "Hey, Sarah, guess what? I need you to, you know, like, hey, Sarah. <laughs> yeah. So you're right there. How about your answer to this? What are you thinking? Because I know you got a lot of thoughts. What are you thinking? Well, that I mean, what you're saying there is don't treat everyone the same. Like that's what I'm. That's what I had to learn too, um, very quickly. But I think that you're emphasizing even more of it's not just extrovert and introvert. It's people's backgrounds and how they interact with the world on who they are um, is very important, too. I had one student on the back channel send me an anonymous request, quit calling on the class. Like that was the entire point of the message was do quit calling like pulling quit calling on people randomly in class, which is really counter to the Northwestern Trilogy approach to teaching this. And I had to basically address the class with with the anonymous person saying, I understand if you don't want to be called upon. And th- I am totally cool with that. But you have to let me know who you are because I have I'm going to continue teaching like this. And this is why. And that person never reached out. I, I always had a suspicion of who I knew it was, but mm-hmm. I was never going. To, I was never going to like address them like that. But it, it's really, it is up to the managers, up to the leader of the office or of the classroom, to really f- figure out each end of each person. And it's a challenge with thirty people. I mean, I, your classes are about thirty and. 55 on the weekends, I think, right? That's correct. And and so it's a challenge, especially when you're bringing in the students on the weekends where you don't know them as well. But it's up to the, the leader to get to know how does each individual person handle a learning environment. And I just, I don't know that there's any other easy way around it. Um, at least I didn't see that myself. So the the I guess the that ties into maybe what I kind of consider the most important part of teaching and we may have talked about this a little bit already but empathy is is important in management it's important in teaching how do you use empathy and I think you can do this better now with the like you kind of address the the challenges you've had with flutter as a new coding language how do you use empathy, utilize it to better be a teacher? Yeah, that's an excellent just area to go through because I think about empathy all the time and trying to put yeah. myself in a position to respond to people, not not as a reactive way, if that makes sense, and to yeah. try to be more thoughtful. And, and here's why I say that. You get all that types of feedback all the time. You know, like you said, this one student reached out and said, stop calling on the whole class. Yeah. I had a student say, stop saying guys. Mm, yep. We're not all guys. And it could I could have responded, well, guys, I hear women say guys. So what's the big deal? Right? I hear everyone say mm-hmm. guys. So it shouldn't be a big deal. But then, Mark, put yourself in their shoes. Try to understand yep. where they're coming from first. And that has really helped me to respond hopefully more, more times than not in yeah. a 
kind, respectful way. And I think about being kind when I think about when I think about empathy a lot as well. That I, I want to empathize with the person. I want to be kind in my interaction with that person. Not just saying being nice because I feel like being nice means something different. Because you can be nice but not really care about the people that you're interacting with. But I feel like kindness just evokes this underlying level of care for everyone around you yeah. and the people you're, inter- you're interacting with. So I'm always thinking, okay, Mark, how can you be kind? And when, even when I've gotten some like negative feedback face to face, that was not about class. Like one time I had a student say something about my singing and my <laughs> first reaction was like, I got a little, you know, funny about it, but then I was like, you know what? And I asked, asked the students, said, how can you be kinder? Just because my first reaction was like, okay, I know that I can't sing. I only do this just as a way to keep the classroom a little bit more lively. And I just really love to sing, even though I don't have a singing voice. Right. But it's just like, hey, how can you be kind? And and I always want to do that. And and that really kind of drives the way that I teach and the way that I interact, even when I was on development teams in the past. So I'm in a non-technical role now as this director of academic excellence. But when my development team situations empathy is really important because you can have someone who every time you talk to that person they give you one word answers and then you go to a different person on the same team they give you more information than you asked for you got some people who who make you feel that they don't want to talk to you at all so you have all of these different personalities and i think as a leader it is on you to always have empathy first always seeking to understand before seeking to be understood yeah and I think that goes such a long way because people just have, and you mentioned this, everyone's different. Everyone's communication style is different. Some people don't want my long drawn out jokes or my long drawn out explanations. Some people just want me to answer the question so they can move yep. on. Yep. And it's a, it is a tough balance. And, and like, I, I, know, I remember when I, when we met and I was asking you, how am I, how do I do this? <laughs> because it really was kind of, I, I had mentored people before, but I had never kind of taken a stage, so to speak, which is what you you kind of do as an instructor in front of 30 people. And I remember like your answers were mainly, were mainly on be yourself and try to like understand this, how the student feels. And I don't know that you remember, but that's like telling me that, but that's, what I took away on your first initial tips and nothing, you didn't say, Hey, you need a power clap. Like this is what's going to work for you. You didn't, you didn't even allude to that technique as the most important thing. Um, and I, I agree with you a hundred percent. You have to, you kind of have to test the waters with the class and see how the class responds. Um, Mm-hmm. And that goes for an office, too. If you take over an entire office where no one knows you, you're not going to figure it all out in one day. It took me a good two weeks to start to get understand the rhythm of my classroom, to understand the people that were really struggling early on and which ones were waiting to just burn rubber and get stuff built. And I went in there hoping that by day two I would have figured it out. And I think I came away with another subject I was going to ask about was patience. Um, but I had to have, be much more patient with myself in the leadership role of, oh, teaching these folks is not going to be easy for me. And I have to really learn more about them before I'm going to be effective on teaching that. 
And so I, I feel like what you're saying is, yes, that's the you, you had that same struggle at the very beginning, um, or at least the challenge of it. So, so when it comes to the patience part, um, there's a different, like in our teaching roles, we definitely are allocated, I think, more time to be patient. Um, our whole goal is to get people to be taught, not to build things that are needed for a business uh, environment. Do you have any ideas about how to show patience for the junior or the green level dev while there's still the demand on them to be productive as soon as possible? Because it's a, it's a striking difference between what a classroom gives you, I think. I would totally agree. Patience in the classroom I have in spades, 100%, because it's just something that you are forced to do if you want to be effective. you got to be patient because you can tell someone what a div is and you can yeah. draw pictures. You can bring in physical examples and that student still may not understand what you mean. And you to yourself, you're thinking, I have told you the best possible way how to understand this. Yes. But, you, but you can't think that way because you're, if they don't understand it, you didn't say it right. Right. You know, so yeah. it, it takes a little bit of like patience and, and humility because you have to understand that even though you may feel like you're smart and you are able to explain things very well, it does not mean that is the most effective way for that person. So you still have to be patient. And I think patience in the workplace is really vital. And the reason I say that is because I've worked on teams where patients was not a thing and, and it had a negative dynamic on the team, meaning that I was green on a team and yeah. had a team member who would literally start to like use bad language in the workplace toward me mm. asking how many effing times do we have to t explain this? And that's an actual, that's actual an excerpt from a conversation, right? That yeah. has happened before. What is What did that do to me as a new person? Not even a junior person. I wasn't even junior at the time. It was, I did not know the platform, right? So yeah. and what I do for me, it made me shut down, to be honest mm. with you. I, I began to feel like I don't even want to interact with you if I don't have to. Yeah. Now, how is that an, an all-star team that, that wins together? How is that a team where you are going to find that everyone has a singular focus of success of the team? It, it doesn't create that, right? It creates a hostile yeah. environment. And then yeah. you get the siloed effect where people are saying, well, all that matters is what I'm doing. Okay. So that's kind of the side effect. But I just think that being patient and how to show patience is you could still be clear and direct with someone about your expectations without making them feel like you don't have patience for them. Mm -hmm. I can say, Jessica, I need this to be done by Friday, but I'm here to help you. But yeah. I really do need this to be done. So Jessica now has this expectation that her deadline is still Friday and that she's going to need to work at it. But guess what? She can feel a little bit more comforted in the fact that she knows she has resources to do this. Yep. And I, I will say on that same level, not only has it been effective for me to, to be direct in the expectation, but to offer um, the help with a, with a junior or, or a green level dev, I will say, I understand that you may not be able to do this by yourself and you don't need to take that full pressure on at your, this point in your career. So what I don't, what I can't deal with is that you wait until the deadline to make it known the help you need. 
And that's been more effective because I've still had people that waited till the last day to say, I'm not going to hit the deadline. I should have told you. I kind of make it clear up front. Like, it's up to you to take the responsibility of when you need help and to gauge when you feel overwhelmed or that you won't get this done. And that has been more effective for me, at least, um, getting pulling out that the communication of I need assistance. I have a question. I need help. Um, putting that as part of the expectation that they, like we can't wait to the last day to find out where you are along this learning curve. So Yeah, I love that. <clears throat> I just think that uh, instructing people to advocate for themselves and encouraging them to do that is just vital. I tell my students, especially in the very beginning, and you know how this is because you, you've taught, yeah. you know, the same program. In the first f- four to six weeks, I'm always saying, don't suffer in silence. You have to advocate mm-hmm. for yourself. You have an army of people who are willing to support you, who want you to be successful, but you have to ask questions. You have to Put yourself in a position to be supported, because if yep. we don't know that you're drowning, then we can't do anything. Yep. So, Mark, oh, as <laughs> far as as far as advocating for yourself, um, let, let's talk a bit about about totally strong um, and and what you're trying to to accomplish there. So, um, give give us a bit more on what's what's uh, what's going into totally strong and and what your plans are for it. Yeah, yeah. So Totally Strong came out of this idea that I always had a lot of friends who wanted to get workout advice from me because I went to the gym and I'm a former competitive natural bodybuilder. So they'd always see me and say, hey, Mark, can you make me a workout? Can you make me a workout? And I'd always say, sure. But the things I can tell you are already out there if you really just did a quick search. But I understand that it's a little bit overwhelming. And so Mm -hmm. What I noticed was a pattern is that these people on Instagram and look, everyone has to to make money. I respect your hustle. But they sell these workouts, these PDFs with the same things that you could find in um, men's health or women's health magazine. You could find on pretty much all over the Internet. And but it's because it came from this person that it was seemed to be you know valuable. So I felt like this stuff should be free. Workout plans should be free. If I'm doing something really cool that I think is working, why can't I just share it with anybody who wants it? If you know me, go to my profile on Totally Strong, download all the workouts you want, and just have a good time. Search the community for postpartum workouts if you're a new mom and you're looking for workouts that could possibly help you. So that's what, that was my motivation because I really wanted people to, like you said before, as kind of the segue into this, they would advocate for themselves. But I just don't think that it should cost you an arm and a leg to do these types of things. You shouldn't be paying me $99 for a PDF that is there's nothing proprietary about it. Okay, cool. So, yeah, I, uh, Rand, Randy, I know, has has done a few gym programs. There, there have been uh, uh, I know I know in following Randy on a few Facebook groups that we're <laughs> mutual friends with. He gets together with a couple of his friends and they do various things from time to time. Um, I've just started at the gym myself here recently, so um, it certainly sounds like something. I, I, I was I was just looking for something recently that would allow me to track my workout. Like, okay, what did I do at the at the bench press the other day? And I didn't do bench press; it was something else. But I don't remember what it was called. Uh, but I don't remember what the pat what the weight was on it. 
So something to track my did. So I don't know if that's something that totally strong will have, or if it's just going to be, Hey, here's, here's a, here's a workout to go um, that, that your friend Randy is doing right now. Yeah. So the weight tracking stuff is definitely in the pipeline. I've gotten so many requests. So I started, I did a private alpha way back. And I think that was in January when I started the private alpha. And that was the number one feedback that I got from anyone who, who, who's actually downloaded the app and tried to use it. They wanted to see what they did before. So, so you know what, that's something that I think is, is valuable. And I put it on the roadmap. Oh, very cool. Very cool. What's your, what is, what is your, uh, what is your expectation on on building the product uh, uh, with with starting a, a, a new role uh, with Trilogy with having a newborn in the house, this side project? What's your uh, what's your timeline looking like for uh, getting something out there? Yeah, so I want to launch to actual production by May of this year, and that's assuming that I'm able to follow my principle that I kind of set for myself on the onset of the year. So a lot of people do different New Year's resolutions and they say all the things they're going to do and they have like a list of like 10 or 15 things. And I just kind of tossed that idea out and I said, I want to do 400 hours toward one goal. It doesn't have to be 400 hours consecutive. It doesn't have to be, you know, 10 hours a week for 40 days. It can just 400 hours. And that's why I've been attacking my project because I feel like if I'm able to put in just a little bit of work every day, two hours here, two hours there, then I can start to have some features. But then I'm also realistic in the idea that there are some features that won't be ready for a whole year just because of the amount of work they'll take. Right. And there, there'll be some features that'll be ready now. So I started with an MVP because the original version of Totally Strong was built in 30 days. And I kind of chronicled the entire thing on Twitter at night and oh, yeah. read about some of those things. And <laughs> just Night by night, you know, even my successes and my failures, we even had a conversation about like how kind of distraught I was when at the end of the 30 days, I had expected everything to be out and ready for people to use. And I had some really devastating blocks in the code that were not my fault. Nothing I could have done about it because I was still using alpha software. Right. And I jumped I jumped in on Twitter when you expressed that because... Well, I mean, you helped me. You reached out to me a number of times when I was teaching, and I, was, I wasn't I was down. I was just exhausted. And it mattered a ton that you would reached out to me in my when I was in crunch time and just said that, hey, I'm here, or I'm like checking in on you. So I was like, well, here's my time to return the favor <laughs> because you were you were going so hard at it on the code and then you're kind of expressing to the Twitter sphere where you were. And then that one point when you were just really frustrated, I'm like, all right, this is when Twitter needs to like jump back and give you a little bit of encouragement. So that's why I did that, which I thought was, which is what I needed when you did that for me too. And I think it ties into the classroom space of people trying to learn are gonna like are will easily isolate themselves when they have a network that they can reach out to, and it's better to have a few people involved. So going back to what Don was talking about, I still am a part of the workout group, and it's only like really three people right now, and only two of us are active. But the most important thing I get out of that group is when we start slacking off and we don't check in, we start giving each other crap about hey. Why aren't you even checking in? 
And we don't call each other slack. We just simply say, you know, why, like what's going on? And that usually triggers people to go like, I need to go to the gym. And then they do. And it's not a negative feedback type thing. And it's not a rah-rah thing. It's just there is another human being out there that knows what you're going through. And you just need a little bit of time to talk to them and vent, perhaps. So I definitely see where Totally Strong is a necessary part of the ecosystem that you're aiming for on that. Um, one last thing I wanted to talk about, um, and this is maybe a personal view of mine, but I feel like I came out of the teaching, being an instructor um, with at Northwestern with Trilogy, was a eye-opening experience that will that has made me a much better manager, a much better um, leader of people. And I felt like I had done that plenty before I got in there, but it opened my eyes up to a completely different ballgame. So I don't. I guess the question, Mark, you're in your new role at Trilogy, and this kind of goes for any school. It doesn't have to be for the boot camps, um, the boot camp that we were a part of. What do you what do you think that teaching at an instructor level can do for a person that wants to be a a CTO or a technical manager one day, and how do they get started? I don't know how Trilogy found you, but what would be your recommendations for someone that were to say, Mark, how do I get to be a part of your program that you're starting up? Oh, excellent, excellent question. So, a couple of things I feel like came out of my starting to teach. And one of the things was I definitely became a better developer. And the reason why is because when you're teaching someone something as complex as software engineering and really trying to teach them the the core of it, you have to explain things in such a way that it requires a deep understanding for yourself. Yep. And that was one of the big things that I got out of it right off the bat. I, I went back to work after teaching for about six weeks, and then when I started to look at problems – I just start to see things a little bit more clear because I start to dive deep. And then it also led to what I call fearlessness, mm-hmm. because one of the big things that I will always say, and I'm sure you said too, is for the students not to be afraid to dive deep into documentation. And even if they have to look at the source code, yeah, if they have to, you know, and that's more of an extreme case for a beginner, but mostly the documentation. Well, I will say this, when I started working with Flutter, for as an example, I literally would read the source code because Mm -hmm. I would think about what would I tell my students to do if they were stuck? How could I solve this problem? Because as an instructor, you're doing lots and lots of problem solving. And I think that translates from your independent or side projects, but even up to being a a leader, a technical leader or technical manager. I think that you start to solve problems in a different way because you're thinking about it in a way that, okay, how can I communicate the need of this this task? How can I communicate that need? And then how can I communicate it in such a way that they can understand and be successful as they do it? Yep. So if someone wants to get involved with Trilogy as an instructor or a TA um, at any level, I know you're not a recruiter, but what's the best way for them to reach out and figure out how to get started? 
Yeah, great way. So just check out the TrilogyEd.com website and the, all the listings are there. Mm-hmm. Another good way is like many organizations, we use a lot of LinkedIn. So make sure your LinkedIn is just up to date with what you're doing in terms of the technology that you're using, because that'll let us know which programs you're a good fit for. Okay. We can put those links in the show notes and LinkedIn everyone should know about by now. Um, if anyone wants to check out your, about the, you know, be part of beta or get involved with your app, what's the best way to reach out to you there? Yeah. So best way is if you want to find me on Twitter, you can do that. I'm at Mark Texan and that's M-A-R-K-T-E-C as in Charlie, H as in Harry, S-O-N. And so you can find me there or you can go to totallystrong.me and you'll find out more information on the site as well. Awesome. All right. Anything else that you would like to bring up about anything we talked about? Yeah, I just want to say that if you are a student out there listening and you want to get you know, better at coding, just be patient with yourself and just believe in yourself. Because I feel like uh, if you're a student or this even goes for someone who's a new engineer. So mm-hmm. if you're just jumping into it, be- really believe that you can do it. And I know this sounds like a, a lot of, uh, even if it does sound self-helpy, it, that's really not the point of it. The, the real point is this, going into a new career, you have the expectations of the world because you'll look on Twitter, you'll see the people who have been doing it for 10 to 12 years and compare yourself to those people. When that's just a really bad comparison to make, you should really yeah. just believe that you're going to learn in this situation. And what I like to tell people is really, if you think about your just schooling over time, when you were in fourth grade, fifth grade seemed impossible. When you were in eighth grade, high school seemed like a really huge challenge when you were in high school, getting to college, et cetera, and then from college to graduate school, et cetera. So all these things seem like really big challenges. But one thing that you'll find that you did every single time is that you stood up to the challenge and you you showed up. Yeah. And just showing up and giving your best, you will you will rise and, and you'll learn what you need to learn and you'll do what you need to do as long as you're giving your best effort there. Awesome. Well, Mark, it was great having you on the show. Um, I think that you're really inspirational to your students. That's shown through with anyone I've talked to that has attended your classes or when, you know, I was sitting in on your class. And I'm really excited to see what your new role means for the instructors at Trilogy, because I know that what I gained from our conversations with you in a focused role for that is going to mean so much to them and the program overall. So I'm, I'm look I'm really excited about where that goes. So we will have you on in the future and there's other subjects around this that I, about the things we talked about that I think we can expand on. So I think for now we'll call it a day, but Don, you're good. Yeah. Thank you, Mark. Uh, really appreciate having you on. No problem, Randy and Don. I just want to say thank you so, so much for just letting me be a part of this. I'm a huge fan of the show. So to be a part of it is really, really uh, important to me and really meaningful. So thank you. Great. We will talk soon. All right. Take care. Thanks for listening to the CTO Think Podcast. Show notes and previous episodes can be found on our website at ctothink.com. Reviews on Apple iTunes are always appreciated and help promote the show. Patreon contributions help us to produce episode transcripts, which allow people that are deaf or hard of hearing to access the show. If you have feedback, ideas, or want to be a guest, please email us at hello at ctothink.com. 
Show music is Dumpster Dive by Mark Wallach. Licensed by PremiumBeat.com. Voiceover work by MeganVoices.com. You'll hear from us next week. Thank you.